0: Okay. One minute past the hour. Good to get started. As usual, hope everybody had a great Christmas. Happy New Year. Uh, Thanks for your patience with the two studies that we missed. Three weeks off. It's been a while, but glad to see everybody back. I don't have any announcements, so uh, Robert has another lesson for us. Good deal.
1: Um, As usual, let's start with the reading.
2: When he had said these things, Jesus went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley. There was an orchard there, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, the one who betrayed him, knew the place too, because Jesus had met there many times with his disciples. So Judas obtained a squad of soldiers and some officers of the chief priests and Pharisees. They came to the orchard with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, because he knew everything that was going to happen to him, came and asked them, Who are you looking for? They replied, Jesus the Nazarene. He told them, I am he. Now Judas, the one who betrayed him, was standing there with them. So when Jesus said to them, I am he, they retreated and fell to the ground. Then Jesus asked them again, Who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus replied, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, let these men go. He said this to fulfill the word he had spoken, I have not lost a single one of those whom you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword pulled it out, and struck the high priest's slave, cutting off his right ear. Now the slave's name was Malchus. But Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword back in its sheath. Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? Then the squad of soldiers, with their commanding officer and the officers of the Jewish leaders, arrested Jesus and tied him up. They brought him first to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jewish leaders that it was to their advantage that one man die for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple followed them as they brought Jesus to Annas. Now the other disciple was acquainted with the high priest, and he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Simon Peter was left standing outside by the door. So the other disciple, who was acquainted with the high priest, came out and spoke to the slave girl who watched the door and brought Peter inside. The girl who was the doorkeeper said to Peter, You're not one of this man's disciples too, are you? He replied, I am not. Now the slaves and the guards were standing around a charcoal fire they had made, warming themselves because it was cold. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. While this was happening, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus replied, I have spoken publicly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple courts where all the Jewish people assemble together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard what I said. They know what I said. When Jesus had said this, one of the high priest's officers who stood nearby struck him on the face and said, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus replied, If I have said something wrong, confirm what is wrong. But if I spoke correctly, why strike me? Then Annas sent him, still tied up, to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was standing at the courtyard warming himself. They said to him, You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? Peter denied it. I am not! One of the high priest's slave, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, Did I not see you in the orchard with him? Then Peter denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Then they brought Jesus from Caiaphas to the Roman governor's residence. Now it was very early morning. They did not go into the governor's residence, so they would not be ceremonially defiled, but could eat the Passover meal. So Pilate came outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They replied, If this man were not a criminal, would we have handed him over to you? Pilate told them, Take him yourselves and pass judgment on him according to your own law. The Jewish leaders replied, We cannot legally put anyone to death. This happened to fulfill the word Jesus had spoken when he indicated what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate went back into the governor's residence, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or have others told you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own people and your chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus replied, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my servants would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish authorities. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Then Pilate said, So you are a king. Jesus replied, You say that I am a king. For this reason I was born, for this reason I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked, what is truth? When he had said this, he went back outside to the Jewish leaders and announced, I find no basis for an accusation against him. But it is your custom that I release one prisoner for you at the Passover. So, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Then they shouted back, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a revolutionary. The Gospel of John... Chapter eighteen.
1: Okay, so we are getting straight into what's called the passion narrative. Okay, so the passion of the Christ, like the movie. Um, when we when we talk about the passion narrative, we're talking about certain chapters in each of the four gospels. In the case of John, we are speaking about chapters 18 and 19. And normally this, was, this would describe the suffering of Christ, his death, and his burial. Uh, once you get past that point, uh, generally speaking, we, we would say, right, that's post-passion. Um, this, this may seem like a little detail, but I think we should consider what literary genre are we in, right? um this can matter because let's say that you were reading poetry you would like to know that that's what you're reading or you're going to take it overly literally or if you're reading history for example you would like to know that to know that you should be taking it literally um well there's actually something really unique about the passion narratives they are found within the gospels which just about everyone would agree they are ancient biographies in genre right whether you believe them to be true or not that's certainly the style of writing to which they belong now the passion narratives don't quite fit in that style or in that genre because biographies ancient biographies although they often ended in the death of the subject of the biography they rarely if ever ended in the martyrdom of the subject So this is unusual for an ancient biography. Now, if you take them on their own, just like if you were to carve out these two chapters out of John, it looks a lot like a martyrdom story, which that was also a fairly common genre in the ancient world. But that doesn't quite fit either, because that style of writing had certain elements that are missing in these narratives. Normally, they would be Uh, certain speeches, certain speeches given that are missing, uh, vengeful threats that are also missing, um, and some uh, sensationalistic details that we don't see in the narrative. Um, The other comparison you could make is what about like a Greek apotheosis story like when a man becomes god think of the hercules movie the disney one you know when he turns all shiny um that would be like the classic greek apotheosis story but uh, the passion narrative doesn't fit that either because jesus is described as returning to the glory he had before the beginning of time uh he's not really being elevated he's just returning to his original state if we want to say that Um, so these narratives are highly unusual in fact there's at least one scholar that says and I quote there is no analogy to the passion narrative in all of ancient literature that perhaps is a bit of an overstatement or you could claim so at least but it's not far off the mark so we're dealing with very unusual ancient writings which of course as a Christian, I think that that is good I think that um, it it really goes to show that these narratives are true because they don't really seem to be copying anything, not even in style, not just any particular set of facts, but even the style is unusual, okay? But with the literary literary analysis kind of out of the way, let's get to uh, the historical background and the action. We need to understand some things to really get into this narrative. First, we need to think of the high priesthood, the office of high priest. We have discussed a lot of this in the past, so I will go rather quickly or I will try to be brief. But we know that the high priest is, or the high priesthood, I ought to say, is an office that was established in the Old Testament. It was done so by God. It is very much a religious office. And it was was hereditary, so you would inherit that. Uh, or the high priest, I mean, would inherit that office from his father, but also he would serve for life. Now, by the time of the first century, we actually have an office called the same thing, but that works very differently. The high priest is appointed by the Romans. We could say the Roman emperor, but really from a practical standpoint, it would be done by one of uh, the Caesar's Political servants you know like a governor of the area or prefect or whatever and also the high priest would, could be and would regularly be removed by a roman official so the person did not inherit the office he also did not serve for life now one of the prior roman rulers had appointed annas as the high priest but later deposed him. Actually it was a different ruler who deposed him. But at any rate, the Romans established Annas and then they deposed him. They they fire him from his high priest office. But there is strong evidence that Annas kind of held on to the office, but just unofficially. Why do we know that? Well, first of all, because all five of his children, including his and I'm including his son-in-law there, served as high priests after him. So it seems like he was pulling the strings in the background, and then his children served as the official face of the office. Um, also, it seems like the Jews continue to recognize him as the true high priest because he was meant to serve for life. And so they kind of played along with whoever was technically high priest but they knew to really honor annas is the true high priest and you very much see that happen in this narrative um you know when jesus is arrested who do they take him to quote unquote the high priest annas who was not officially the high priest right caiphas was officially the high priest okay but we will get into more of that here in just a second now Another thing we need to understand is that the high priesthood at this point, oh, and one more detail I've got to mention. Technically, there's only one high priest, but by the first century, it was common to refer to the high priest and his sons as the high priests, like a plural term, like they were all high priests. Completely inappropriate if we are going off of the Old Testament description of the office, but this was already common practice in the first century. Um, Now, the high priests, they were normally Sadducees. And during this Bible study, we have discussed the Pharisees at length. Uh, They were the religious fanatics, if you want to call them that. They had, they, they would not only follow the rules that were explicitly in the Old Testament, but explicitly found in the Old Testament, I mean, but they would even follow rules that they had come up with, you know, over the years through tradition. And so they were very legalistic and they were very religious about it. Well, the Sadducees, they were wealthy aristocrats who were in charge of the temple and really in charge of ruling Jerusalem and Israel for the most part. Now we'll go into more, more detail there. Um, they used the Old Testament, particularly the first five books, like they were binding, like they were the societal rules, they used them as the law, but they denied the spiritual realities that that underlie the Bible, right, the Old Testament. Uh, So they were very hypocritical in that regard. They denied the resurrection of the dead. They denied the afterlife. Uh, They denied angels and demons essentially they were quite naturalistic uh they were certainly not atheists i'm not saying that but but they were kind of atheistic in their in their spiritual thinking um they were not well liked by the people this kind of hypocrisy that they had going on was not popular but believe it or not the, the office of high priest was dominated by Sadducees, not by the Pharisees. So the high priest was very politically inclined, not so religiously inclined, which is just a tremendous insult to what that office was meant to be. Okay. Now, the other um, little detail, I think somebody's mic is not muted. Not that it's a huge deal, but I, I kind of heard somebody uh, chime in.
0: Yeah, um, let me see. I'll, I'll see if I can take care of that. Thanks. Okay. Um, or yeah. maybe they they already got it, but
1: sorry about that. Good deal. Yeah. No, no big deal. No big deal. Well, the other uh, kind of piece of the puzzle that we need to understand is the Sanhedrin. Okay. The Sanhedrin was the ruling council of Jerusalem. In the ancient world, it was typical for large cities to have their own ruling council. Sometimes it would be called senates, so like a local senate. Um, And in the case of Israel, it was the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin had uh, either 70 or 71 members, um, at least by tradition, it would be one of those. Um, Now, it seems like that number may have been a sort of average, and it did not always, you know, specifically had that many members. Um, But at any rate, most of the members were Sadducees, okay? Not Pharisees. The Pharisees, so they're like to use a summary term, like the religious fanatics, they were actually a minority. It was the the ones who didn't really believe in all the spiritual stuff who had the majority. Um, so the Sanhedrin was really a political body with a religious veneer instead of a religious body with political power. And I think... That is very important to understanding the story and understanding why the Jewish leaders do what they do, because they're not particularly religious. Okay, they use the Old Testament as um, rules to live by, but the truth behind those truths or behind those rules, they deny. Okay, so with with all that background in mind, um, we we get to the betrayal in the arrest, right? So for the last several chapters, 13 through 17, Jesus has been teaching. He has been giving this long speech. Uh, the, The speech is always in view of his impending death. That comes up throughout his speech. Now, the time has finally come. They leave whatever place they're at. It's a little bit unclear, right, if they're still in the room where they where they had dinner or if they had gone outside. Not that that matters, but they leave wherever they're at and they go to the Kidron Valley, okay? This is a valley that is to the east of Jerusalem. There's a creek that runs at the bottom of the valley, but that creek is normally dry most of the year. Um, again, not, not that that matters theologically, but I'm just trying to give you a sense of what is going on here. Um and they walk to what your translation is either gonna call an orchard or a garden, okay? And the reason why you, you see that discrepancy, what, what the translation is going to call it, is because in the synoptics, um, or, or forgive me, the word that is used could certainly mean garden, um, but gardens at the time were normally enclosed by walls which is not what we seem to read about in this narrative, but we also know in the synoptics that this garden is called Gethsemane. And that means olive press. That word Gethsemane means olive press. So what is probably going on here is that you have an olive orchard and they've they've arrived to the area that has the press and this olive press is part of the same agricultural unit as that orchard. OK, um, so Jesus arrives with his disciples at this olive orchard um, in this valley and then, quote, a squad of soldiers come to get him along with some other people. Here, there is a little bit of ambiguity to the term as well. What at least the NET translates as squad of soldiers is literally a cohort. Now, a cohort Right? It's, a, it's Roman terminology for a group of 600 soldiers. Now, of course, 600 soldiers did not show up. That's not really the controversy. Um, it's, think of it like this. If I said the fire department put out the fire, I don't necessarily mean that every member of the fire department showed up. Okay, so when when we read here that a cohort showed up to arrest Jesus, it means some members of the cohort that, again, that's another issue. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, What the question is here is, were Roman soldiers involved at this point? And if you read, for example, the translator's note in the NET, it makes it sound like, yeah, definitely cohort is a Roman term. So the Romans were involved in arresting Jesus. Um, But that is probably not the case. By the first century, the terms like cohort would also be applied to provincial forces, like essentially in this case to the Jews. Um, So... The fact that that word is used does not necessarily imply Roman involvement in this story, in all four gospels, it seems like the Romans are not yet involved at this stage. So what I think we should be picturing is um, the Jews went to arrest Jesus with their temple guards, with their soldiers, and the Romans were probably not involved yet. Um, Does this matter a great deal? Of course not. If you want to picture Romans involved in the arrest, feel free, but I really don't think that that is correct. Um, At any rate, the soldiers show up, they have lanterns, they have torches, and you may be thinking, why is that the case? It could be that it was just already dark, so they needed those to see, but... This probably implies that they expected a chase. They expected Jesus to run away, uh, you know, through this orchard and this valley. So they were prepared to pursue. And that did not happen, right? Jesus stood his ground and um, turned himself in without any resistance, although we will discuss Peter's actions in just a moment. There is a very odd moment in the dialogue. So they, the arresting force shows up and they say, we're looking for Jesus of, or sorry, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus says, I am he, and they fall down. Okay, and you may be thinking, what is going on here? Now, of course, I always try to be as fair to the text as I can be. It could be that they just fell down because maybe Jesus said it forcefully and advanced forward and they like tripped or something. Yes, that is technically possible, but given the context, given the intended audience, right, given the Jewish context, it's it's quite clear that what's going on here is that if you notice, Jesus uses, quote unquote, the divine formula to say, I am he. We have discussed this in the past, that in the Old Testament, God says his name is, I am who I am, or By the time we translate it into Greek, I am he. Okay. Well, Jesus says that, right? He just says, I am he. So he uses God's name and applies it to himself. And everyone hits the ground. You could, you can picture this. Like Jesus having having said something so blasphemous. The Jews almost expected lightning to come down from the sky and everybody's hitting the ground to avoid whatever calamity is about to happen. Um well they get back up, they ask the question again, and they finally arrest Jesus. Okay. Now w- this is not just kind of an odd moment or or whatever. Notice that they are arresting Jesus, uh, among other things, for blasphemy, although to the Romans they will say that it's because Jesus is a revolutionary. Uh, but one of the things that has really upset the Jewish authorities is the blasphemy. And so essentially, if Jesus was trying to, uh, you know, make amends, make amends, uh, to get along with the Jewish authorities, uh, to say, I am he as he is being arrested. It's about the most unwise thing that you could do. Um, Well, then Peter attacks. The synoptics, remember when I say that, I mean the other three Gospels, don't actually tell us who reacts violently. They do describe somebody doing this, but they don't give a name. In John's gospel, we actually see that it is Peter who does it. Now, why would we see that difference? Remember that the other gospels, they were written earlier. So it's quite likely that the other gospels don't mention Peter's name because they want to protect his identity. He could still be arrested and prosecuted. By the time that John is writing, later in time, that is a much smaller risk, if a risk at all, depending on when he wrote it, right? Um so we get the identity of the person who strikes, it is Peter. We also get the identity of the victim. Malchus, although he doesn't show up. I mean, I suppose he's mentioned again later in chapter 18, but he's not like a major character. Um now Peter cuts off the ear of Malchus. And I think it's important to notice that it is nearly impossible that that is something that Peter intended to do, right? This is like when somebody is robbing a store and then the store owner uses self-defense and shoots the guy and kills him, right? Inevitably, somebody will say, oh, why didn't the store owner shoot the robber in the hand or something? Well, because... People are not that good. They're just not that good with a weapon. Uh, It's unrealistic. So it is nearly impossible that Peter was, you know, he had the dexterity to simply cut off somebody's ear cleanly. So uh, Peter probably intended to really get the guy, to get him in the neck or in the face, and the other guy moved a little bit. So he's only injured uh, on the ear. Um, I, I clarify that to show that Peter here, he he doesn't seem to be issuing a warning. He seems to be going into full fight mode. And that's when Jesus stops him and says, no, I must drink the cup, right? And we, which is kind of an odd expression, at least for, for us, for uh, Jewish people in the first century, it would not have been an odd expression. They would have understood what Jesus meant. Um, the cup is an image of judgment that is regularly used in the Old Testament. Okay, and it, it normally goes something like, "You, mu- I, God, saying, I will force somebody to drink, drink the cup that will make them inebriated. Effectively, that will poison them so that they will, uh, they will stumble into their demise." Okay, that's what cup means. It is uh, it is God's revenge or judgment upon somebody. And Jesus is saying, I must drink this cup, right? I must accept this, this judgment uh, or punishment, however you wish to phrase it. Uh, if you're interested, I give some of the verses in the Old Testament that use this expression in the blog. Just for the sake of time, I'm not going to... Uh, read them out loud um then jesus is brought to annas okay remember annas is technically a nobody in the sense that he has no official position and yet he's the first guy that jesus is taken to why because really quite clearly annas is still the high priest albeit unofficially and that's certainly how the jews at the time see it so they take Jesus to Annas and there is, um, a, well, an, uh, an exchange, um, you know, accusations in defense and so forth. Um, now, this trial, which I'm going to discuss here in a second, it, it, it seems to be full of corruption and it's likely that the first-century audience would have picked up on some of the irregularities of this trial. Um, for example, the tradition of the Pharisees prevented one person, like a single individual, from acting as judge in a capital case. Now, uh, Annas, of course, was not a Pharisee, so perhaps he just didn't honor such a tradition. That is possible. But there's other traditions... now. And and let me give a disclaimer here. What I'm about to say comes from later rabbinic sources. So perhaps these traditions were not already implemented during the first century, but it seems like they probably do go back to that point. Um, But if these later sources are to be relied on, um, normally a, a capital case could not be decided at night or the trial of me could not occur at night it had to occur during the day this could explain part of the reason why jesus was taken to caiphas early in the morning so there could actually be a trial during the daytime um the trials should not occur on the eve of a sabbath or or holiday uh, which is exactly what's going on here um also the There should be at least one day between the trial and sentencing in a capital case, which is not what we get here. And finally, the Sanhedrin, so the rulers, should have met in a certain chamber, the Chamber of Hewn Stone, which is not what we see here. Um, So the trial does not follow proper procedure. And And if you're thinking, by the way, oh, these are ancient people, they cared nothing about procedure, that is certainly not the case. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that these people always did the right thing or anything like that, but procedure did matter to them um, and is not followed in this case. At the same time, uh, would an ancient person hearing this story be surprised that the powerful were corrupt? No, not at all. At the time, the law explicitly favored the wealthy and powerful. Uh, That was just baked into the cake. No one would have been surprised, um, but it does make Jesus more uh, appear more of a martyr or or more uh, unfairly uh, punished. Well, um, I see that. Okay, I'm going to try not to run out of time. Um, so it says that Annas questions Jesus about his teaching and his disciples. Uh, what teachings could NS be asking about? Well, probably he is, quote, threat against the temple. Um, if, you, if you can think back all the way to chapter two, when it says Jesus replied, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again, right? Or maybe the blasphemous claims that Jesus has made. Like when he said the father and I are one, um, that was in chapter 10. Um, and also, Annas could be asking Jesus about his disciples, you know, if they're being blasphemous or revolutionaries. And the prime example would be what Peter just did during the arrest. I mean, that was a very dumb move, if, if I can just say it like that, from, from Peter. Now, Jesus doesn't directly address the accusations that are made against him. He, uh, what he does is, is say, look, everything that I've said and done has been said and done in public. There could be a little bit of a legal strategy here um, because according to at least the tradition of the Pharisees, and again, the Sadducees were not really bound by that, so how much weight you want to give that, you know, you'll have to decide. It's a little bit tricky, but in a capital case, a person could not be condemned by their own testimony alone, right? Uh, you needed other witnesses. You couldn't just, just take the one person's testimony, even if that was the accused. Um, so Jesus may not be even, uh, he may not be even attempting to defend himself because it's clear that this trial is a sham, that it is legally uh, inappropriate and therefore void. Um, also, the, the Jews, at least by custom, understood that if you had done something in public and had been vindicated in public, then that trial would be inappropriate. The issue had already been decided, a sort of double jeopardy, if you will. Um, so, um, with all that in mind, what does Jesus say? He he says, hey, I have spoken publicly. I have taught publicly. What are we even doing here? And of course, I'm I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Um, and that goes back to the public vindication, right? If I did something wrong and everything that I did was in public, then there would have been a public reaction. That matter would have been settled right then and there. But the fact that nothing happened in public proves that i am innocent also why have a trial what is there to discover there's nothing secret everything is already out in the open that's the argumentation that jesus is making besides both romans and jews were very suspicious of secret sex because they could be they could start revolutions and trouble in general so jesus is making clear look i'm no part of some secret group what i've done i've done in public And of course, there is an implied accusation, not only a defense, but an accusation here, which is that um, Jesus is saying, I taught in public, but everyone knows that what did the Sanhedrin do? What did the Jewish leaders do? They did not arrest Jesus in public, right? They arrested him in secret. So although, although Jesus doesn't come out and say it, there's the clear implication, hey, I acted openly it is you who acted in secret okay so he's kind of stabbing and twisting the knife there a little bit Um, then and here my write-up is incorrect I said Annas strikes Jesus it's actually one of Anna's officials who does so forgive me I'll I'll go back and fix that Um, but why is Jesus struck well for his defiance anyone else in this situation, they would have had a self-effacing uh, attitude. They would have said, oh, woe is me. I'm so sorry. And they would have been overly, uh, you know, adulatory of the the religious elite and saying, you guys are the best. You, you know, forgive me. I will never do such things again. That is how most prisoners would have reacted. And that is certainly how Jesus, uh, or how The elite probably expected Jesus to act, but Jesus is not back off, right? He just stands his ground and uh, that earns him a strike. When I say earns him, I'm not saying the strike was justified, of course, just uh, that is the reaction that he gets. And then Jesus, right, responds to the strike with effectively an accusation. He says, if I've done something wrong, then say what I said wrong. If not, why do you strike me? effectively i've said nothing wrong so your strike is a violation of the law in this room out of the two of us the one who broke the law is it me it's you okay so a very heated exchange here or we can assume we can assume that it was quite heated um and then Annas says, take him to Caiaphas, and it goes to Caiaphas, and then from him to Pilate. Now, why do we have to go through Caiaphas? Because he is technically the high priest. We need his rubber stamp for this whole process to work. And like I mentioned earlier, possibly because a daytime trial was required, since this was a capital case, that that could be. Um, Well... Something that I haven't mentioned yet because I didn't want to break up the action is Peter's denials. Peter's denials are interspersed with Jesus' responses to the high priest. And, and it is a great literary device because you see Peter failing, and interspersed with that, you see Jesus standing strong. So it creates this backdrop that makes all the action you know, really kind of pop. Um, well, if you guys remember, Jesus had actually predicted that Peter would deny him three times before the rooster crows. Um, and that was um, back in chapter 13. Um, I, again, I won't read it just for the sake of time. Um, but uh, Peter... He's following Jesus and the people who arrested him they're going to the household of Annas and um, he actually has to stop at the door he can't get in right to the door of the courtyard not not of the home itself um, and then one of the other disciples is able to let him in so one of the disciples we don't know who had connections in the household of the high priest and is able to get Peter in now We can speculate all day long who was that disciple, what were these connections, but honestly, we don't have enough information to figure this out. The connections simply could have been that this disciple uh, supplied the the household of the high priest regularly. When I say supplied, maybe like sold them fish or grain or what have you. Uh, And so he knew some of the servants. It could be as simple as that. Or it could be that this unnamed disciple um, actually was a friend of somebody there. Who knows doesn't tell us. And honestly the text doesn't even say that the disciple is one of the 12. The disciple doesn't always, or the word disciple doesn't always refer to the 12. So for all we know, some disciple we know nothing about. Okay. Well, uh, a slave girl recognizes Peter. And I I will just end with this section, by the way. I clearly won't get through my whole blog today. I very much misjudged time. So (laughs) give me just a minute and then I will open this up to to comments and questions and whatnot. Um, But a slave girl recognizes Peter and says, hey, aren't you one of the followers of Jesus? Now, how does she recognize him again? We don't know. We can speculate. Maybe she had seen Peter with Jesus before entirely possible maybe for example she recognized peter's accent since peter was from galilee uh, he may have had more of like a country accent as opposed to the big city of jerusalem Um, but she says hey aren't you one of his followers and he says no now keep in mind that for a disciple to deny his teacher even outside of the jesus story just in general This would have been seen in the culture as very shameful, bringing not only shame upon the disciple, but bringing shame upon the teacher. Um, So it's a very ugly thing that Peter has done, and and that's a silly way of putting it, but um, there you go. Um, Then later in verses 25 through 27, we get the two other denials. They're similar. Somebody goes, Hey, Peter, or not Peter, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? He says, I am not. And the third accusation or question, however you want to look at it, is actually the most serious because somebody says, Did I not see you in the orchard with him? Now, remember that Peter tried attacking somebody, probably with lethal intent at the orchard. So if somebody had recognized that this was the Peter who just cut off somebody's ear, Peter could have actually been. Uh, tried and sentenced with good reason i mean with good lawful reason that he actually did something wrong um and peter says no i'm not a follower of jesus and then the rooster crows and that is the climactic moment right in peter's story certainly not the end of his story he will be restored later and that's important as a lesson for anyone who may have faltered other believers um And with that, I'm actually going to stop here and and, uh, Matt, if you want to open it up to questions or comments and and we'll see what happens. Sure. As always, guys, if you'd like to
0: participate with a question or a point of discussion, whatever you have to offer, just put question in the chat and we will take those in order. My first thought is a pretty basic one. I have, I guess, a due process question because there's a lot of trial themes here and how we handle accusations. But you mentioned that even that one piece of testimony is not sufficient in a capital case, even the accused person's testimony, which I am inferring to mean a confession itself is insufficient. Correct. Well, and, and, and if you could just, el- I know you spoke about that, but if you could just elaborate a little bit more, cause I, I don't feel like I'm clear why.
1: Um, well, I, I think this comes from the fact that in the old Testament, uh, The the Old Testament law says that in a capital case, somebody cannot be convicted unless you have the testimony of two or three people, right? Essentially saying one person's testimony is not enough. Now, remember that the Pharisees, they were very, very devout and very square in their interpretation of the text. So I think they took that text so literally that they said, well... The law says it must be the testimony of two or three people. So one person is not enough, regardless of who that person is. Did that require witness testimony too? like you had to,
0: let's yep. say, well, I guess I, maybe it's foolish to break down the hypotheticals, but I, but I could also envision a capital offense where it's not witnessed by that many people. And yet it still would seem apparent that it happened. I suppose, but maybe, maybe the answer is that person's not put to death. Then there's some other penalty.
1: Yeah. But I mean. To be honest, I'm not, I don't have like any particular case in mind, like I don't, yeah. uh, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I suppose that if there was only one witness to the murder, uh, maybe they would have been convicted of a, of a lesser offense, or perhaps they wouldn't have followed the law quite yeah. right, right like I'll,
0: I'll continue on this theme just because i i don't have any requests to speak yet not because i'm trying to steal all the time so if anybody wants to jump in with this topic or any other you are encouraged to do so um but i i i know I, i've seen the end of this story so i know where it's going um i guess i'm left to believe that that jesus i, I guess I, I don't know whether confession or just um, a no contest plea in this case is appropriate or how that plays out. Um, I guess we have some indicators of it in, in the scripture today, but um, so I, I guess then this conviction is going to be secured on other witnesses and not on Jesus's own.
1: Uh, well, uh, okay. it, in a sense, it won't be secured by the Jews, right? The Jews are going to take him to Pilate, and there's going to be a different trial by different rules because the Romans, okay. right? They don't, they have a completely different criminal procedure, and um, eventually will be the Romans that condemn Jesus by their own rules. But but essentially, you're exactly right that that the the Jewish trial, like be, before the Jewish authorities, doesn't actually properly condemn jesus by their rules of criminal procedure uh so this whole thing is rigged this whole thing is corrupt uh and that wouldn't have been missed on the audience at the time they would have realized okay that quote-unquote trial was hardly that it was hardly a trial
0: okay well i will uh I'll, i'll see how it all turns out as we continue through it thanks for the explanation uh chris um if you're ready to go go for it yeah, thanks for
3: the opportunity to ask a question. Um, so this is a, this is something that has confused me for a while. Um, you know, and in, in basically what what I want to ask about is this. You know, how Peter came to have a sword in his hand? And if you look at the Luke's account in uh, in, in Luke twenty two, basically Jesus tells him this. This is a Let's see, I think this is between the Passover and, yeah, this is between the the Lord's Supper and the praying on the Mount of Olives. Uh, But Jesus says to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they look and they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So uh, anyway, that's basically my question is, is uh, why did he tell them to take sword? Peter, Peter took his sword and he used it. Right. So uh, I guess what was what's your thoughts on what Jesus intention there was?
1: Hmm. That is a tough question. I don't know that I will have a great answer because the two passages happen in different at different points in the story. And I'm not just mentioning the fact that we're pulling from two different gospels. That's that's fair game, but it's not the same point in the story. Um, and so I would have to go back and study the context of the passage you're mentioning. I totally get the question. I think it's a fair question, um, but. I really would have to do a little bit of homework before I could give you a a good answer.
3: Sure, sure. That's that's fine. Yeah.
1: So, yeah. Sorry about that.
3: <laughs> no worries. It's like I said, it's something I've pondered for, for a while. So,
1: thanks, Chris. Um, uh, and by the way, if you don't if we don't have any other comments, I can continue with, with the lesson. I do have much more stuff that I can get to just in case.
0: I think uh Donald at least I I'm, I'm guessing you want to chime in but uh go ahead and go ahead and do that if you're looking to discuss but if not we can move on to some of Robert's additional topics here. Uh until Donald joins maybe we should go with uh with that assumption that uh okay or go with go
1: that route of the additional topics that that you wanted to cover. Good deal. Then we will continue with the action um there's there's just so much here and notice by the way that i have hardly discussed theology at all chapter 18 doesn't have much theology it it just has events um now of course there's tons of theology we can pull from this but but i'm just kind of sticking to the text at any rate jesus is taken to pilate now why why do the jews take jesus to pilate pontius pilate was the governor technically he was a prefect Uh, but they, the term governor can refer essentially to just a, it's a generic term for the Roman ruler, whether he was a prefect or a different kind. Um, well, the Romans gave local councils, like the Sanhedrin, the power to issue sentences and carry them out. So this local council can normally act as a court and punish the accused, um, except for the power to execute someone, okay? The execution had to be approved by the Roman authority. And you may ask yourself, why is that? Really, one of the main reasons is because the Romans did not want the locals, the provincials, right, from the province, the provincials um, killing somebody, sentencing somebody to death because they were pro roman Right. That that makes sense. Otherwise, if a Jew became pro-Roman, he could be brought to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, and the Jewish council might sentence him of whatever bogus accusation to kill him. So for that reason, the Romans reserved the capital punishment power to themselves. So they they go to, to Pilate and they say, hey, this guy's a rebel. You need to kill him. I'm reading a little bit between the lines here because that that conversation is not in the text, but it's clearly implied. Now, this is very much in keeping with Roman criminal procedure. I've said this a thousand times before, so I'm sorry for saying it again. But the Roman system was based on a system of delatoris, right, of accusers instead of prosecutors, a person or counsel. Uh, would go to the Roman authority and say this person is a criminal and then the person making the accusation would act as witness and as a sort of prosecutor. Um, So um, what's going on here is in keeping with Roman custom in that sense. Um, Now, they go to to Pilate very early in the morning. This is just kind of a, a neat detail, but... The Romans actually started doing business really early in the day. During the summertime, what the Romans called late morning was around 8 in the morning. Okay, that was already late morning. So they're probably taking Jesus to Pontius Pilate around 6 a.m. ish. It doesn't say exactly, but that should be pretty close to the time. And they take him to the governor's residence, or at least that's how the NET calls it. We're not exactly sure what building that would be. Again, not that this matters from any kind of theological standpoint. Um, Earlier commentators, like including ancient commentators, uh, they would prefer uh, Fortress Antonia, uh, which is adjoining the temple courts. More modern commentators and scholars, they think it was the palace of Herod the Great. Uh, there's reasons why it probably is the palace. We have other ancient writings that describe Herod's palace as being um, the residence of the governor. Also, it was much nicer, as far as like being more luxurious, and the Roman governor certainly would take the more luxurious option. Um, but notice that the Jews could not go in to the Praetorium. That's the word in Greek that is used for the governor's residence, the praetorium. Why is that? Because the homes of Gentiles, of non-Jews, were considered to be unclean. And if the Jews had gone into the home, they would also become unclean. And they could not participate in the festivities anymore, in the Passover. And here, the governor, Pilate, meets them outside. This is an important detail. It shows a little bit of Pilate's attitude at this point. Pilate, he, uh, from other writings outside of the Bible, we know that he was very cruel and really quite anti-Semitic. He he did not like the customs of the Jews. And in fact, he was so so brutal at times, particularly at the end of his career, that he ended up being deposed because the Jews deposed him strongly because of his undue cruelty. Um, But at this point in his career anyways, he seems to be a little bit more politically savvy and at least meets them outside and accommodates them in that regard. Um, So, um, you know, he comes out. And oh, and one more thing I want to say at this point, that there is tremendous hypocrisy in the fact that the Jews who are delivering Jesus, um, they are observing the purity rules, right? They're not going into Pilate's home because then they would be impure. And yet they have no issues with convicting an innocent man. But then when it comes to purity rules, oh yeah, absolutely, we're gonna observe those. It is so reminiscent of a verse in Matthew that we haven't read, but I'll I'll read it out loud because it's just great. This is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, experts in the law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites. You give a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, yet you neglect what is more important in the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have done these things without neglecting the others. Blind guides, you strain out a gnat, yet you swallow a camel. Right This is a perfect example of them ignoring the weightier things of the law, like fairness and justice, and then observing the details, like the purity rules. Um, okay, And we have three minutes, so again, I want to open it up. Are there any comments or whatever and and, and I can cover the rest next week.
0: i uh, I feel like my my questions are satisfied. I uh, appreciate the expanded lesson, but of course, we do have a couple extra minutes if anyone wants to chime in before we call it a night. Um, well, now I see Donald raising his hand. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, uh, Donald, okay. Uh, if you, yeah, go for it if you if you'd like. Yeah.
4: Um, preface by: I am no way a scholar nor a preacher, <laughs> um, but this this final passage in this chapter. Um, Pilate's interaction with Jesus uh just to me it, it leaps across the centuries and it puts puts this just squarely in you know yeah in our own time um I mean you know it's such a famous question what is truth and he's faced with the truth um so, I, I guess all I can do is just kind of underscore that because I, you know, again, if I were a poet or a preacher,
1: <laughs>
4: I could maybe make some significant comment here. But it's uh, to me, it's it's one of the uh, main or I don't know heaviest or most significant passages in all of John's Gospel. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah.
1: Um. Thank you for that comment. I will get to that next time. So. Um, Clearly, I didn't get to cover all of Chapter 18 today. I will, you know, we'll pick up where I left off next week because I am dying to discuss that conversation. Like you said, it is so impactful. Uh, It is so full of irony. And uh, we got to decide if they're speaking in in mocking tones or, or, you know, it's a question sincere. There's just so much to discuss. And like you said, it is so powerful. So we will definitely go over that next week.
0: Great. I look forward to that. All right. Last call, everybody. If you want to get a last word in, now's the time. Otherwise, we will call it an evening. Um, I will remind everyone that if you missed any part of the lesson, you can always listen back uh, on the Bible study page of the website we have a full podcast feed wherever your podcast you can get the show and miss and catch up on any part that you missed also if you'd like to get in touch with robert or myself you can do that through the bible study page of the website as well and uh we appreciate you coming back after the after the christmas and new year's break we will catch you back here next week i hope anything else robert before we call it an evening
1: no that was it thank you very
0: much have a great night, everybody.